1: that's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back Gator fans to the Gator Nation football podcast. What is up? My name is Alan Williams. As always, on the pod with the illustrious, the amazing James DiRigilio. James, how are you doing? I'm doing great.
0: This is the time of year where things settle down for me in my professional life, in my speaking life, even in my podcasting life. And I really get to enjoy fully the Christmas season. Uh, Those of you that know me personally know that I decorate my house. We have Christmas movie nights. We had a big party over the weekend. It's a good time. It's a good time for me. It settles down. It's a nice slow period. uh, And I get to enjoy sports and sort of just take it easy uh, on a a day-to-day basis, which I thoroughly enjoy. Alan, how are things for you in the frozen tundra of Moscow?
1: It's great. Uh, I'm feeling a little strange right now though, because I stayed up super late last night to watch the Jacksonville Jaguars put it on the Seattle Seahawks, The probably the biggest Jaguars game in a decade. We're here, baby. I'm loving it. Um, so I'm feeling a little bit strange right now because I haven't slept too much, but I'm excited for this podcast. Let me tell you what's going on in the app. We are going to get to all the Gator news. There's some interesting stuff this week. We're going to grade the rest of the coaching hires. We're going to get into the bowl games and the playoff games. And we're also going to talk a little about the schedule of the show over the next couple of months. Also, if you like the show, give us a like on Facebook. And if you'd like, become a patron on Patreon, really easy to do. You can find the link all over our stuff. Anyway, James, let's get to this. Tell us about some news that's happening.
0: Well, let's start with the coaching hirings and a guy who left. And we'll start with the guy who left. Chris Rumpf, defensive line coach, solid coach. I think a guy a lot of people thought would remain on staff here at Florida. Left to become the defensive coordinator at Tennessee. That's obviously a significant promotion. It makes perfect sense that he would leave for that. Uh, Jeremy Pruitt making what I think is a good hire there. That's a recruiting-based hire in Tennessee. And a guy that I think had a lot of success at UF. Alan, your thoughts on Rumpf to Tennessee?
1: Yeah, it seems like a good move for him, especially if he's going to be the defensive coordinator there. I, I, it hurts us. You never know with recruiting, like, who's really responsible for what, what's all the accumulation of factors. But, I mean, the word on Chris Rumpf that he was a good guy, players liked him a lot, that he was a really solid recruiter, and our defensive line has played well over the last few years. So um, that seems like a loss for us. I think we'll continue to see this type of shuffling Maybe we'll see guys like Tim Skipper exit the program. Um, Maybe after signing day, who knows? Um, The staff isn't fully set. And we'll see some guys come and go, I think. But this one is not a great one. Some guys, you know, we kind of celebrated their departure. Nussmeyer and Nord. This is one where I think we would have liked to hold on to him if the fit had been you know, good for him, which it seemed like it was. But can't blame him for taking... A defensive coordinator job so good luck to chris romf he was a he was a great coach here
0: yeah that's well said nick savage comes in as the new strength coach he's 28 he's pretty new in the profession age-wise and also being a director of all the operations he really only had that title at mississippi state for a season and a half two seasons in totality an important note on this one alan before i get your thoughts a lot has been made over the failures of the strength and conditioning program at the university of florida When it pertains to the number of injuries that go on the offseason arrests, Nick Savage is a guy who I believe Dan Mullen and others believe is an excellent babysitter. And I'm using that term literally. Uh, My friends who have played college football, they almost unanimously say that the strength coach has to be a babysitter. For these athletes, he's the one that's closest to the players. He's the one that needs to befriend them and get to know what's going on in their lives. And essentially, he has to be good at creating a rah-rah atmosphere, where in the off season and in the downtime, these kids still want to excel. I think Nick Savage is that guy, as far as his strength protocols. Uh, I didn't have time to do a deep dive on research. I do plan on commenting on that later, but it wasn't easy to find out what essential exercise theories or strength training theories he subscribes to, but it does not look like he subscribes to uh, Jeff Dillman's Olympic lifting, which was much badly hoed, uh for the amount of injuries that caused. And, and I don't think that's going to be the case. So I think you're finding a guy that, that did an excellent job at Mississippi state by all accounts of being that raw, raw babysitter guy He's been at Ohio State with Urban. He's followed the Dan Mullen, Urban Meyer tree perfectly, and he should fit into the mold of the strength coach that was here when Urban was here, who was very well-liked uh, with regards to how well he babysat the athletes. Of course, Alan, look how that turned out at the end, right? We sort of had like a broken quote-unquote program. So take what you will with this, but I think a lot of Gator fans are happy that there's just somebody different here from a different mindset. What are your thoughts on Nick Savage.
1: let me start with the name. Nick Savage is an excellent strength coach name. I don't think we can do better than that. So on that, I'm just giving an A plus. But you're right. He's really young, but I do think it speaks volumes for him that this isn't a a really speculative hire from Dan Mullen, that he had him last year. So he took a chance on him as a young guy and was impressed enough that he brought him along to UF. And you could hire a lot of different guys to come to UF. The money that we can pay, the prestige of the position – So he sees a lot in them he's, I guess he's from that. Yeah. Mickey Mariotti strength coach under urban Meyer kind of philosophy. So I don't know if he completely dovetails with that, but if you're looking for a starting point and evaluating him, I guess that's where you would begin, but this seems like a, a good hire. Now, if he's just 28 and we plucked him off somewhere, I think I'd be a little nervous. Um, but who knows, maybe he's a rising star and we got him here for a while. I don't know where else he would go other than to maybe where he graduated from who knows where that is but Nick Savage excellent name I'm happy with that from from there
0: yeah certainly a savage hire uh, next up is Brian Johnson most recently at Houston before that at Mississippi State with Dan Mullen before that at Utah before that played under Dan Mullen as a backup to Alex Smith this is a good hire I like this hire Allen Uh, This follows in Urban Meyer 1.0's footsteps. And if you recall, Urban, when he came to Florida, brought most of his Utah staff with him. In fact, really everybody that he could, he brought with him. He then got a lot of coaches promoted, which is what happens when you're successful. And our program went down. And Urban has said before on multiple occasions, the biggest mistake he made when hiring coaches was he didn't hire guys he knew over from a tree of guys that he knew. And I think you're seeing... Uh, sorry, Meyer. I think you're seeing Mullen follow that perfectly. He's following the Meyer 1.0 plan, which is hire these guys you know. And Brian Johnson is certainly a guy that he knows. It's also a guy that grew up in Mullen's offense to be the coordinator. So essentially, you're getting a lot of synergy there. Uh, this makes perfect tactical sense if you're Dan Mullen. And this does follow, like we mentioned, this follows what Urban said was his biggest mistake. So I think you're really seeing how, how much of an influence Urban Meyer had on Dan Mullen Uh, But I like this hire, and I think that a lot of people think Brian Johnson's a rising star, and he especially, in theory, could be a guy that really relates to the quarterbacks we need to recruit for this offense, since he's played under it. uh, He's a guy that's known for working well with quarterbacks. He had a lot of success with the Mississippi State quarterbacks, and then most recently with Houston this year. So, Alan, your thoughts on Brian Johnson?
1: Yeah, I like this a good bit. And so he was a rising star. He was an offensive coordinator at Utah when he was super young. He was in his 20s. He's only 31 now. And he went, he left Utah after they had a kind of a, a few rough seasons when they joined the Pac-12. Overall, their talent level wasn't up to the Pac-12 standards. You know, went back with Dan Mullen and Mississippi State. Was at Houston, I think, for only one year here. And kind of an up-and-down season, a little bit under, you know, major Applewhite and kind of leaving. It's a little bit of a demotion in a sense, Um, but maybe not in that. I don't know if there is a real offensive coordinator at the university of Florida because Dan Mullen calls the place. He's his own OC much like Spurrier was. Now he's got guys like Hevesy and Gonzalez. And I I guess now Brian Johnson to help him and create a game, game plan, coach the offense, coach the individual positions. I think this is really helpful. Now, if you were hoping that Mullen was going to diversify a little bit and bring in somebody to add some spice to what he's doing, this isn't that high, really. Although, you know, Brian Johnson has been a couple of places, um, you know, without Dan Mullen. But I don't know. I This is, I think, potentially a home run hire. If this guy is a future star, like he seems like he might be, could be excellent for us. Um, but yeah, I, I was maybe hoping for a little more diversity, but that's just one way of looking at it. The other way, like you said, is very tactical, bringing guys you trust, bringing guys who know your system that you know are going to do a good job. And this guy is still really young with a lot of room to grow.
0: Yeah, it's funny, Alan. I think you're you're highlighting for me the dichotomy and the frustration that I will continually have with this regime. On one hand, I will praise it by saying they're going to be true to the system. If you take anything away from this podcast in the past couple of weeks regarding Dan Mullen and Urban Meyer, take away from the fact that they are loyal to the system, which I think they take it to a fault, which is what you're mentioning. I think that there are exploitative strategies that you can use based upon your long-term strategy to increase your win rate. And that is not something that Dan Mullen has done or really Urban Meyer has done. It's essentially loyalty to the system. And therefore – you hire guys that are entirely knowledgeable on your system. There is no desire to run anything else or do anything different. And that makes sense in a certain regard. Um, And that's why I'm saying if you you are a system guy, it is a logical move that you do these things. And then you can take a zoom out on that and say, okay, James, well, what do you think about that? Well, I think that you're leaving wins on the table uh, by being so unilateral with how you build your staff. So, I think it's a good hire. I think it makes sense for all Mullen coaches. I think Mullen has to be true to himself. It's what's got him here. That's going to be the the rubbing frustration that you'll hear from me is I think it leaves wins on the table. I think the offense schematically uh, will cause us to have some frustrating times at times. But all in all, all in all, uh, I think hiring guys you know, guys you work with, especially with year one at Florida, when you've got to develop some new players, flip the system over makes a lot of sense because you do not want Dan Mullen getting into theological football discussions with a coordinator who has different views on things. Uh, That's not how Mullen and Meyer coach. And so you're going to have to stay true to that tree. And that's sort of the the meta commentary for me on what you're going to be seeing and hearing a lot as we kind of evaluate this regime as it moves on. All right. Off the coaching train and onto the brand apparel label train, Florida, I'm sure as all of you now know, is a Jordan brand. So we are one of the first five schools, I believe, maybe six schools to become a Jordan brand. We'll wear it for only basketball and football. Everyone thinks this is a home run for basketball, Alan. The players get Jordan shoes during the season. Uh, If you're a basketball player at all, you know how important Jordan shoes are to the, the culture that is basketball. That's a home, home run. It's a grand slam. It's everything you'd want for basketball. Some people feel like it's a little odd to have the jump man on a football jersey. Your thoughts on on that, Alan? Is it weird to see a basketball logo guy dunking a ball on your football jersey?
1: No, um, maybe slightly, but if it wasn't such an iconic image, and Jordan, you know, implies success and domination, and I, well, one thing I like most about this is—is is it scarcity that there's only a few schools who are on this? You know, North Carolina famously. And when Michigan switched over, I, I got to admit, I was a little bit jealous. Um, I like the brand. I think it's going to be good for us. It sets us apart a little bit. There's a ton of Nike schools. And so Jordan brand is unique, but also has the power of Nike behind it. Uh, and I'm a uniform guy. I like watching out what we do with our uniforms, what tweaks we make, how we look. Um, and so this for me is like kind of an interesting point. I Hopefully we'll continue to have the kind of classic uniform look. I don't want to be like the flashiest kids at the table. You know, I didn't love our swamp green uniforms. So, I mean, Michigan looked great in their Jordan uniforms. I think this will be great for us. And it gives us, yeah, just a little bit of an edge potentially, or it means nothing and who cares. Uh, But I don't think it hurts us in any way. And potentially, like I said, sets us apart from other people that we're recruiting against and, you know, there's so much that goes on with these backdoor shoe deals. And you see it over in college basketball. Sometimes it's more important than you think it is um, with these shoe deals than how much money is kicked around here. But I like it for Florida right now, at least.
0: Yeah, we certainly know Dan Mullen likes it since he goes recruiting with khaki pants on and his Jordans. I don't know about the khaki pants and Jordans. I think we can improve Dan Mullen's street style. <laughs> yeah. But uh, <laughs> he seems to think it's a big deal. All right, sadly, James Robinson's career, our second highest rated recruit last year, a guy we took near the end, 6-4, really athletic NFL bodied receiver, his career is over due to a heart condition that they spent a lot of time evaluating. They spent the entire season evaluating it. That's a tough blow for him. I can't really imagine what it must be like to be in his body with his skill set, projecting a certain way in your life. And this is a guy that had some off the field problems by the way, especially with marijuana, but you kind of had a chance, at least in your mind, that you could do something, and that's where your identity is. And so to be an 18- or 19-year-old guy and and now be dealt this blow, that's tough times for him, I think.
1: Yeah, that is rough. Feel for the kid a ton. Um, had a chance here to really accomplish some significant things, get his life on track. You know, we took him despite some difficulty. McIlwain really went to bat for him. And, man, it's tough. I feel for him. It's, you know, of no fault of his own. And this happens in recruiting, you know, guys leave, guys get hurt, guys aren't able to play, whatever it is. So this is to your point, take as many of these guys as you can recruit the best you can. Cause some guys, this stuff happens. And, you know, unfortunately for UF and for James Robinson, this is the end of his time playing college football and, yeah, I hope, hope that he figures out what he wants to do with his life and is, excels in some way. And I think, you know, most of these schools are pretty good about giving these guys a chance to still attend the university. If they're offered an athletic scholarship and they can't um, maintain that, the school usually lets them on a non-athletic scholarship finish out. Um, there's a guy, Nolan Kelleher, who's finishing up. Um, he was a must champ recruit. And so this, this type of thing, hopefully if he wants to do, he'll still have a chance at a great education. If not a shot at playing football, speaking of recruiting, James, is there any news this week? We got ourselves another kicker. We did
0: sign the number two kicker in the country. It was a Mississippi state commit. And I think the, the zoom out news here is this, the benefit of hiring Dan Mullen who was a head coach for a long time at a program in the same conference he's now coaching in is that he's basically poaching his own recruiting class. He's cherry picking the athletes that he thinks are good enough to make a difference at Florida, which are by the way, some ESPN 300 guys, a much chronicled number by me, especially last year. And one you just alluded to Alan, he's doing that. And that that's helpful. We don't know anything yet about outside of his Mississippi state connections, what he's done. It's been too early but we know that he's hitting the ground running. And the reason we keep bringing this up is there's three position groups we should be focusing on. And we have other needs outside of these. But if you want to measure year one Dan Mullen's success, you're going to look at quarterback, offensive line, linebacker. Those are our three biggest needs. And if Dan Mullen is an extraordinary recruiter, he lands a couple of those guys. If he's an average recruiter uh, at UF, at the UF standards, maybe he gets one of those guys. And if he's a below average recruiter, uh, you strike out significantly on getting top ESPN 300 talent and the second thing you want to look for as you head into the recruiting season here like we mentioned is the number of top 100 guys you sign and the number of ESPN 300 guys you sign I do believe that there's causation and correlation with the number of ESPN 100 guys you sign and how good your team becomes uh, and especially how many 300 guys you sign you have to have depth within your top players. And that's something I think people miss in the recruiting process. They fall in love with a guy or a name or somebody's high school tape. That matters way less to me. To me, it's a numbers game. If you can sign 20, 25 guys and you can have 10 to 15 of those guys be top 300 guys, there's a great chance that player XYZ beats out other player XYZ, but the guy starting is an ESPN 300 guy. And so that's crucial. So keep an eye on that. But as of right now, there's been lots of noise, lots of movement. You know, we're going hard after Justin Fields at Georgia, uh, the top, the top quarterback in the in the country and the best dual threat guy. I think it makes a ton of sense for him to come here, like we talked about. Uh, and I also continue to think that Mac Corral should really go elsewhere at this point in time. He's still committed to Florida, but it'll be interesting to see what he does here as there's just a few more days remaining before this December 20th date. Alan, any other thoughts you have
1: on recruiting thus far? Yeah, I don't know how much we'll get to talk about recruiting before this December date. Um, this is, we've mentioned this several times, but this is a unique moment in all of college football history, really, that they have this early signing day, kind of a split national signing day. So recruits are allowed to sign, I think, between the 20th and the 22nd. Then that window closes, and then there's the next national signing day, which I think is February 7th or 8th or something like that. And this is a new challenge. And so I could see, you know, we're going to have some guys, I'm sure, sign on the 20th. But the temptation for a lot of people, I think, will be hit the panic button on what this class is potentially lacking, whether it's linebacker or whether it's offensive lineman. You know, we've got to give the staff some leeway here. Nobody else has ever had to come in as a new coach and sign guys within a couple of weeks in December. Now, they've had to do that probably in January. But this is a new beast. And so uh, just because we don't sign guys doesn't mean we won't now. the lack of relationship that these guys are coming in with, with these recruits is puts them behind the eight ball. And so if you look at the classes of first year, Florida coaches, um, it's usually been the high teens, mid teens kind of a thing. So if we land somewhere there, that's probably good. And then the second year is really where you want to see it blow up. And, you know, Muschamp, Meyer, Zook all had top, top classes their second year. And you expect that from a, a high profile good recruiter and we'll see if Mullen be able to accomplish that. Now he's got to address some needs. Like we mentioned with offensive line linebacker quarterback, of course, but again, don't hit the panic button yet. Um, let this play out. It's going to be a lot of like craziness. If you don't follow recruiting, it gets kooky and who knows what this next couple weeks is going to be like. But I think he's already got some quality guys coming in if they stay committed. And I personally, James, I'm going to go the opposite of you. Of course, I would love to see a Justin Fields come in, but I would think Matt Corral, if we can get him, we need to take him. And not that you want to like lie to him and say, like, oh, you're a perfect fit. This is the best ever. But if he wants to come here, he's a good enough athlete and a good enough quarterback that he can make it work. And I think he'd be the best guy on our roster. And so you go from there and... I don't think you can turn a guy down like that. I think it's he's too big of a prospect, too big of a player. And let's come in and see if we can make it work.
0: Oh, yeah. I don't think we turn him down. I think he should turn us down. But, <laughs> you know, it's just it's tough. It's tough, tough, tough in this system. You kind of have to have that guy, which we talked about a lot on a previous episode. All right. Let's take a look at the rest of the coaching hires that occurred last week. There were several notable ones. We'll start first with the worst school in the entire country. Of course, I'm talking about Florida State. They hire Willie Taggart from Oregon. We had talked about him at the Florida job, essentially as a candidate for us. We chose not to hire him. Uh, I had mentioned during that Florida job talk that I did not think he would leave Oregon after a year. Uh, I was wrong about that. Of course, last week you heard on this very podcast before it happened that Willie Taggart was going to be the guy at Florida State. This seems like a good hire for Florida State relative to who they could have had. Because if you think for a second, who else were they going to hire If they didn't get Willie Taggart, there's probably a large question mark there. However, Willie Taggart, as chronicled on this show, has a lot of question marks on his own, including a losing record as a head coach, as well as several other things that I think don't necessarily show me a path that anyone else has taken to become elite. He is tabbed as a great recruiter. There was an article that came out in SEC Country, uh, I believe yesterday, uh, which would have been Sunday, Sunday evening, Uh, monday morning they came out and talked about essentially how maybe willie taggart is actually overrated as a recruiter and that there's xyz reason as to why that seems to be something we're going to figure out in the next year or two at florida state florida state does well when they typically recruit at an elite level some people think taggart is expected to do that only time will tell as far as the hire goes alan i want to get your grade for what you think florida state has in willie taggart how do you grade this hire
1: I'm going to say B. I think he's a guy who has some upside in terms of, you know, recruiting. He's still developing as a coach. He's turned around some programs, which is a different skill set than managing at the highest level. Um, you know, Florida State always recruits well. And so I don't know that – it's not like, you know, he's been a great head coach somewhere and he the recruiting needs to up, you know, its quotient. I don't know. This, this hire to me doesn't scare me now because they've already been recruiting well and we've been losing to them, I guess, but, um, I'm not fearful of them with Taggart. Maybe I could be wrong. Like you said, it was definitely the best hire they could make or the most sensible hire they can make made the most sense, but it's not something that I'm quaking about. Um, I think Jimbo Fisher, still at Florida State, you know, without some of the distractions is, you know, a more daunting proposition. So maybe Willie Taggart will prove me wrong, but it feels like kind of a mediocre hire for them. But I'll up the grade a little bit considering its circumstance and how late in the game it took place.
0: Yeah, that's the interesting part is as a Gator fan, I feel like this is great. Willie Taggart's completely average, according to his resume. He's had some nice rebuilds. He's had some questionable results uh, outside of those. He is a guy maybe on the rise. He's a Florida guy. He's got a lot of connections, so there's a lot of stuff there to be concerned with. But you don't win at this elite level as a recruiter. You win as a great recruiter and a great, as you mentioned, Alan, CEO, head coach, and administrator. I think Taggart is significantly lacking in those areas. This is a big leap of faith for him to come into a program like Florida State with the expectations that they will have, having only two coaches in the past 40-something years. Jimbo, who I have admittedly said a million times is an excellent football coach. I think Florida State is going to really miss Jimbo Fisher uh, much more quickly than they imagine. And I think at this point in time, they couldn't have gotten Chad Morris, who I liked a lot at SMU. Uh, they would have had to go with a coordinator. Uh, maybe a guy like Mike Leach would have been interesting. I mean, I certainly think Mike Leach could have been better than Tagger, but Florida State's going to follow in the recruiting mold because of what you mentioned, Alan. Florida State still is, in my opinion, the best brand name amongst high school athletes. Um, I think a lot of Florida fans hate hearing that. But if you go pull high school athletes around Florida, Florida State's the school they want to play for. In fact, many of the guys on our own roster grow up as Florida State fans. I think it's rare that you have high school athletes that grow up as Florida fans. Uh, It's just not quite as often as they are Florida State. For whatever reason, they have that going for them. And so I think Florida State falls in those footsteps. But right now, I feel like that higher is a Uh, And they couldn't have done much else with it. I I don't really think, Alan, which is why I like you're kind of bumping it up on letter grade. But it makes me feel pretty good as a Gator fan. It makes me feel great not having Jimbo Fisher there. He owned us. I think a lot of Gator fans were really seriously sleeping on him. I don't know why. Uh, We'll see what he does at A&M. But I think it's good news for us that Taggart's there and that we don't have Jimbo Fisher to deal with anymore. Okay, Tennessee finally made a coaching hire. After ins- the insanity that ensued, the Game of Thrones-like action by Phil Fulmer, he takes over. He runs, by all accounts, a pretty standard and well-run coaching search. In fact, it immediately became very normal. So I suppose we can give him some credit for that. And he chooses to hire Jeremy Pruitt, yet another Nick Saban guy, Alan, getting a job in seemingly the training ground for Nick Saban guys, the SEC East. What are your thoughts on Jeremy Pruitt?
1: Um, blah. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how you make this hire and expect to win. Now, considering the process they went through, probably feels good not to do something incredibly stupid. And this isn't stupid. but I don't think it's good. I'm going to give this a B minus C plus. Uh, and it would probably be lower if they hadn't just come out of their fiasco of a coaching hire. I mean, I guess, I guess you look at Kirby Smart and you're like, this can work. But if you look at Will Muschamp, other Saving disciples, it hasn't worked. And I don't know how, you look, how you're how you expecting to beat Dan Mullen and, you know, Kirby Smart in the SEC East, much less all those guys out West with Jeremy Pruitt. Now, he hasn't had a chance. He hasn't failed yet. He could hire an amazing offensive coordinator. He could be a Bob Stoops-esque character. Uh, you know, he wasn't great at Florida State as a DC or the fans didn't love him he goes to Bama and works under Saban, who knows what that's like or what you're actually doing there. He could be a fantastic recruiter. I I don't know. A lot of question marks about this. It's not an unreasonable hire, but it doesn't, it doesn't worry me in the slightest. Again, I could be proven wrong by this, but um, Nick Saban, defensive coordinator, you know? Okay.
0: Yeah. I give this one a C. I think, I think Mike Leach would have been a phenomenal hire for Tennessee from my, from my standpoint. I think that would have brought back excitement to the program. It would have been like you just mentioned, Alan, it would have been something contrarian to what a lot of the rest of the conference is doing. And if you evaluate it the way you just did, Pruitt has to beat Kirby smart. Who's the best Nick Saban disciple that we can observe right now. Yes. It's early, but by all accounts, he's probably the best one. He's got to beat him. He's got to beat a Dan Mullen, who was a well-established sec West coach, And then he's got to beat somebody from the West. And I think if you look at it that way, I think Mike Leach, although he hasn't done it, has had tremendous success at inferior schools. And for all you Gator fans out there that are falling in love with what Mullen's done at Mississippi State and how that's going to translate to a high wind spinners here, the same test applies to Mike Leach. Keep that in mind. Uh, I don't think you have this with Pruitt. I do think that Phil Fulmer chose a guy that's going to be stable, if anything, kind of boring. Uh, I think this is a better hire than maybe some of the other ones they've made in the past 10, 12 years, but all in all, this is a blah hire. They didn't make a splash. I think when they started the hiring search, they wanted to make a splash. And in kind of reality, Alan, doesn't Pruitt sort of feel like the the Shiano without maybe some of the, some of the baggage behind him. I mean, they're kind of similar guys, aren't they?
1: Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. I mean, Shiano is, known to be like hated by everybody so I don't know if Pruitt has that baggage he doesn't have the Penn State stuff on him so in that he's younger so that's an upgrade from that situation and Leach while a really interesting guy I don't know if he would have been the best fit for Tennessee culturally so maybe they dodged a bullet I mean I could see Leach hating the culture of Knoxville and the Tennessee program so maybe that's a good thing that didn't happen But that would have been an interesting hire. This is not an interesting hire. It may turn out to be a really great one. This could be an excellent hire, and he could go on to dominate, but that's not what I'm projecting. Yeah, it
0: doesn't seem like that. All right, and here's the guy that we chronicled that we liked. This is a guy that Chris Doring loved. Chris Doring was campaigning openly for this guy to get the Florida job when it first opened. Arkansas hires Chad Morris. What do you think about this one?
1: I like it a lot. I think this is the best guy out there that they could hire. And Arkansas is interesting. I think it's a better job than people get a credit for, but you have to recruit Texas. And Chad Morris knows how to recruit Texas. He's a lifelong Texas guy, former high school coach. That's where he's going to make his money. And so this seems to make a lot of sense for them. Uh, he's an offensive guy. He's going to do some interesting things there, I think. If I were an Arkansas man, I'd be pretty happy. Now, again, he doesn't have a great track record as a head coach. He's only really been at SMU. He had to do a big rebuild, but they were a quality team this year. I think he's an up and coming guy, although he's not as young as you might think he is with his level of experience. Um, Good job by them. Uh, we'll see. This could be a, a bust and they could just be mediocre, but I like the move for them.
0: I'm going to give this hire an A plus for them. And I want to put this caveat back on with the hiring. This doesn't mean that Chad Morris is going to be successful. This means given Arkansas's resources, the situation that they were dealt, the cards that they had in their hand, did they get the best guy they could? Yes, they did. That's all you can ask for. And then I think, you know, in James's world, you give that guy three years. And if he fails, you go to the next guy. But this is an excellent, excellent hire by Arkansas for the reasons you just mentioned. Recruiting Texas, he's got tons of confidence. He's been in a successful program. And ultimately, Allen, This is another contrarian strategy to the Nick Saban sort of venom. Let's take an offensive guy. Let's try to do something here to shake, sort of shake the foundations. And now you've got Mississippi state and I think Arkansas looking into that. Let's not try to beat Nick Saban at his own game, right? They just came off the Brett Bielema experiment where they're trying to run power and you just can't beat Nick Saban at that kind of stuff. So I like this hire a lot. Again, it does not mean it's going to be successful, But if I'm an Arkansas fan, I think they did an excellent job maximizing who they had. Uh, That's a good, solid hire by them. All right, UCF loses the biggest, brightest, shining star of the coaching season this past year. They lose Scott Frost to Nebraska. In comes Josh Heupel, also coming with him. Maybe the biggest coordinator hire of the offseason, Randy Shannon, goes to UCF as the defensive coordinator. Your thoughts on the Heupel-Randy Shannon combo
1: at UCF? Yeah, I'm gonna give this a B plus. I think they had a moment here to hire a really high, like high profile for them guy, but this is a good hire. This is a solid move. Um, I think that he can be successful there. Now he's a Midwest guy. He played at Oklahoma, you know, won there, worked as for Bob Stoops as an OC. That didn't work out. Was at Missouri, and really saw that offense this year do exceptionally well by the end of the year. I think Randy Shannon at UCF, a lot of recruiting ties. So that's why that hire was probably really important is that he knows the state of Florida so well. I think this could be good for them. I mean, really, what do you have to lose? I would rather take a chance on a young and up-and-coming guy. But thought they had the chance to maybe hire somebody like a Kevin Sumlin or something like that. Now, I don't know if that was in the cards or not because they are peaking as a program right now seemingly. But this could be great for them. Uh, I like it.
0: Yeah, I'm going to give it a B minus, and there's two reasons why. One, Josh Heupel does not run even remotely the same offense that you saw with Scott Frost. So you've got a transition there. On the flip side, I think UCF recognized the fastest way for them to be recognized is to win with offense. The style with which they played won a lot of people over. Hypel does run an exciting style. In fact, Heupel does a lot of, like we quantified on this podcast, two-on-one-ing safeties down the field which I like a lot, which is the reason Missouri had so much success against Georgia in that game this past year. So I like a lot of the stuff he does, but I wonder, Alan, if they wouldn't have been better served digging deeper into that Chip Kelly tree, the spread option uh, passing tree. Again, I say spread option here. It is based on Chip Kelly's spread option, but Scott Frost modified it a lot to run a lot of downfield passes, a lot of let's try to score on you right away mentality. And so I think they went with the marriage of Pel likes to score right away as well, which is the scheme that, of course, you all know I love. And they went with that, uh, even though Hypel's running game in sort of that scenario it tends to be a little bit different than Scott Frost. So I like the hire. I think it shows that UCF is proving to be like maybe a launching pad to the bigger programs. And you can get a guy like Hypel who's well regarded despite his failed stint at Oklahoma. Uh, but Randy Shannon, I think, is the big key here. The fact that Heupel is able to pull Randy Shannon who is a solid defensive coordinator? Who's obviously a big name, a guy that can recruit Florida, is, is a solid combo by UCF as an administration to make those things happen. I like that package uh, in its entirety. We'll see how well it works in the field. All right, Oregon, last hiring we're going to look at Oregon and Mario Cristobal. This is a guy who was like a just a white hot supernova at one point in time in 2009 and 10. And then kind of disappeared as FIU faded, where he was the head coach. And has sort of been off a lot of people's radar for a while, Alan. He was at Oregon this year. They promote him. We know Dwayne Johnson, a.k.a. The Rock, loves this hire. What do you think about this hire?
1: I'm going to give it a B. It seems like a good move for Oregon at the moment. They don't tend to make the splashiest hires. Willie Taggart was a big move for them. You know, it, it probably is going to be fine. I guess that was what I would say. He probably deserves another chance at being a head coach. He's worked with a lot of successful people, including Saban, you know, now experienced with that Oregon brand. He can recruit well, I think is one of his main appeals, especially in Florida, which Oregon has to do. There's no talent in Oregon. So you need a guy who is recruiting forward. And he's been with the program at least for a year, understands the place. The players seem to like him. I don't know who they were going to hire at this point in the process that was going to move the needle for me. And, you know, hopefully they didn't give them a ton of money with a giant buyout. So if it doesn't work out, they can reset the thing, but it seems like a pretty solid move for right now.
0: Yeah. I like a B plus in this one for the reasons you just mentioned. I think that you keep a guy that was in the program, you keep the momentum that's going. You probably attempt to hold on to your fifth ranked recruiting class Now they're going to fall back as the bigger schools sign more players. But that's a historically high level right now. Maybe they'll be slightly above their their levels in the past. And you give a guy a second shot, and he's a Florida recruiter, like you mentioned. So you're kind of saying, hey, if we can't have Taggart, let's get a guy that's similar to him uh, and kind of see if this profile continues. I like their their big strategy from, from the zoom out mode. I see what they're doing. I think that's a good way to attempt to win at Oregon. Uh, whether or not it works is one thing, but I understand what they're trying to do, and I think that's wise for where they are. I think that's smart. I think that Oregon is relevant in the state of Florida because of the Nike campus. So I like, I like what they're doing. I think that's wise. I think that's a, I think in general, you know, I don't know who they else could have gotten, like you mentioned, but I like the tactics that are being employed there.
1: Okay, James, let's circle back around to something that we talked about last week. A lot of discussion here on the pod about Dan Mullen's offense And you're maybe, I wouldn't say disdain for it, maybe some would say that, Uh, but your dislike of it's, I think, certain aspects of it and some of the philosophy, some of the tactics. Now, part of it that you don't like is some of the passing concepts. So let's say you get a chance to talk to Dan Mullen and you say, Dan, why don't we try out some of this stuff? Have you ever thought about this? And I'm sure he has, but what would you like to tell him? What kind of downfall passing do you want to see, you know, maybe 20 yards and plus what would make you happy if we showed up in the spring game and we're doing all this kind of stuff, um, that maybe looks a little different than Dan's traditionally done. That would be quite the enjoyable
0: conversation. And I would obviously (laughs) tape it and put it on the podcast, but, uh, I think that I want to reorient some of you to to what downfield passing means. And I got a few questions on yardage numbers and are we trying to throw enough goes per game? And that's actually not really what I'm talking about. And I did highlight this last week, but it's a lot to unwrap. So let me just base one, theory one, passing game Dan Mullen could employ but currently chooses not to is to, instead of 2 on one a linebacker or a cornerback, which is what his current system does. So what I mean by two-on-one, I mean you you create a formation and you create a play design that essentially makes a linebacker or a cornerback be two-on-one. He has two routes coming at him. He's got a running back out of the backfield coming at him and a receiver running a hitch, and he must choose one. The quarterback will then throw the ball to the other one. The stated goal, like we mentioned on last week's pod, is to gain three to four yards, maybe four or four plus yards per play. Okay. The opposite to that is to two on one a safety or downfield two on ones. Same scenario create a formation, create a play design. And now you're going to send maybe a receiver and a receiver, or a receiver and tight end, even a receiver and a running back. And you were going to try to make the safety decide do I cover the post and the go? Do I cover the dig in the corner? And how do I handle that? And now you are attempting to score touchdowns. So essentially, when a team puts themselves in a bad position, when they declare, we are not going to let you run the ball, you say, okay, we're going to try to score a touchdown. It's not necessarily about just throwing the ball down the field because I want to throw the ball down the field. It's about attacking aggressively. Let's call it for like maximum pain on the opposing team, right? Okay, you're going to do this. We're going to inflict max damage on you. This is the haymaker shot that we're going to take. And yes, that's a slightly lower percentage than hitting the quick jab. But if I hit the haymaker, I can knock you out. And if I do it enough and I create a good enough downfield offense, then I have enough situations where enough haymaker slam per game and that results in more touchdowns. So it's not a situation of I want to see receivers run more goes and I want us to drop back and just throw these bombs. It's much more philosophical with regards to how the offense attacks. Now, of course, Dan Mullen is very, very aware of these different concepts. I can assure you this. Uh, He prefers what we consider to be more of the low-risk strategy, the less variance in the offense strategy. And I think, uh, much like we mentioned with Rex Grossman last week, that when the big play is there, you're best off going for it, especially if it's elite team versus elite team, because you only have so many opportunities in a game to punish a defense especially a really good one. And I think you want to maximize those. So as opposed to getting 15 yards, you get 40, right? That oftentimes makes the difference in the game, which is why people track plays that are larger than 20 plus yards. So we're going to cover this, especially in the X's and O's section, all of next year. But I wanted to get you guys thinking about these concepts as you head into bowl season, as you watch other offenses roll, to really kind of understand in the football world, in the spread offense world, those are your two main concepts philosophical sticking points. You have coaches that want to be downfield two-on-ones and you have coaches that want to be what you would consider to be attacking the flats based two-on-ones, linebackers and corners in the flats. Dan Mullen is in that category. I prefer to be in a different spot entirely with that. So that's a little bit more. Hopefully that that connects more of the dots on maybe why I don't like uh, how we attack a defense with our pass. Now, Alan, here's the guy who attacked the defense with passes really well this year. He won the Heisman on Saturday. Baker Mayfield, runaway landslide victory. Not a surprise, I think, to anybody out there. He was certainly deserving of his performance on the field. Your thoughts on Baker Mayfield's Heisman campaign? Former walk-on, possibly professional Halo player becomes football superstar.
1: I love it. This is a guy, I think I picked him at the beginning and maybe in the again at the middle to win it when it didn't look like they were... <laughs> maybe primed to make the playoff run. I love the way he plays. I love his aggressive nature. It does remind me actually a little bit of Rex Grossman, both in stature and in kind of the gunslinger mentality. He's going to make you pay. He reads the field really well. He moves around the pocket aggressively. Uh, On those RPOs, run pass options, where he has a chance to, you know, put the ball in the running back's gut or pull it out and then throw it over the top of the linebacker to the tight end. He's exceptional at those. Um, He's got a better arm than you think he would for a guy who's a former walk-on and a guy his size. I don't know if he'll be great in the pros, but I love him in college. Fantastic season by him. I'm looking forward to watching him in the playoffs. And so I thought well-deserved, you know, some people want to criticize some of the stuff he's done this year, but I don't, I don't want to hear any of that. He didn't do anything wrong. This is not a Cam Newton or Jameis Winston type situation. I think some of that is Moxie is good. And he, you know, of course he can go over the line sometimes I'm sure, but I think a person like that is fun for college football.
0: Yeah. I'm happy that he won the Heisman. We talked about sort of what the Heisman meant character wise at one point in time. I went on a small tangent about how I think Baker should have acted more Heisman worthy in some of these moments because you're called to a higher standard, when you're in the spotlight like he is and you're a leader, I think that would have been awesome. He didn't do some of those things. Uh, He needs to be held accountable for those things, which I think he is and was. And uh, I also think that there's been too much blowback on this, Alan. I saw Kurt Herbstreet tweeted out, Baker Mayfield's misunderstood. Congrats. He's an excellent guy. And then the the guy for Tennessee, who pulled out the double birds in the game against Alabama to the crowd, uh, I believe it was Alabama, um, tweets, Hey, Kurt Herbstreet, what a hypocrite. You know, I can't believe that you essentially would support Baker Mayfield, who makes gestures on the sideline, and tell me that I should get kicked off the team. I don't think that flicking double birds to the crowd, Alan, is the same thing as doing something that you said in this very podcast that happens every single week and is not caught on cameras to the opposing team. Neither of those things are good. Uh, But I think that, you know, that's kind of an interesting scenario for that young man at Tennessee to kind of pull that out and think that him flicking off fans with both hands is somehow equal to the level of debauchery that Baker's been to. But regardless, this guy is fantastic to watch on the football field. I cannot wait to watch them take on Georgia in the Rose Bowl. Uh, This is going to be a big time challenge for him, and he's going to prove how good he really is. Oklahoma quarterbacks, Alan, as you know, have really struggled when they've gone against elite defenses. They just haven't been able to look like they do for all the rest of the season. I cannot wait to see this matchup. Uh, He is by far the most fun player left remaining in the playoffs, and uh, I really hope that he does well. I don't know who I want to win. I want no one to win the playoffs. So let's talk about the playoffs and make some predictions because in reality, I want all these teams to lose. But I, I do think that I had the most fun watching Lincoln Riley and Baker Mayfield call plays uh, as, they, as they head to the playoffs. So Oklahoma plays Georgia in the Rose Bowl January 1st this year. They finally got this right. Uh, no more New Year's Eve playoff games, which was a disaster. Georgia's currently a 1.5 favorite, 1.5 point points favorites uh, there against Oklahoma which this line is, I think, really interesting. I feel like this game is going to be a blowout either way for some reason. But, Alan, your thoughts on this one? Give me your prediction. What do you got?
1: This is going to be great. I like Oklahoma in this game a decent amount. I think Oklahoma is still going to be able to put up points on Georgia. I I think Auburn showed that if you catch them in the right – alignments and they have some deficiencies out deficiencies out there Oklahoma's been able to score all season I can't see Georgia slowing them down enough now the question is is Georgia just going to sit on the ball the whole time and basically keep Baker Mayfield off the field that's what they're going to try to do but I don't think they can keep pace offensively and I don't know I like I like Oklahoma in this game I feel pretty confident about that could be way wrong obviously if Georgia comes out and just blasts them but I, I do like Baker and Oklahoma
0: yeah, this is such an interesting experiment game for me. I feel like my my like football gut is telling me that Georgia's is going to win this game because they're going to they're going to boa constrict them and they're essentially going to make Oklahoma one-dimensional. They're going to have to pass the ball. They're not going to be able to run anything within 5 yards of the line of scrimmage. It's going to have to be a lot of downfield passing. And I think that they've made adjustments throughout the season that that's hard to do against them. For four quarters. However on the flip side. Like you mentioned. Oklahoma runs the offense. That is built to attack Georgia's weakness. Which is the back end. That's their weakness. There are very few SEC teams. That play that style. That are capable of doing it. So it's a really fascinating game. I'm really excited about it. For that reason. Uh, I continue to want to discount Georgia. uh, Primarily because. They're a little bit limited on offense. Although Fromm does an excellent job. Which I've continued to say here on this show. Uh, But. I don't, I don't know on this one. This really is a very difficult game for me to predict. Maybe I'm leaning towards sticking with Georgia because the history Oklahoma has in these kind of games where their defense can't stop anybody and it sort of becomes the scenario where the offense can't quite score enough touchdowns. So with that, I'm going to go with Georgia, which I can't even believe I'm going to do that, Alan, because typically you pick quarterbacks, quarterbacks win. But there's just something about... That Oklahoma team, they've played too many close games against inferior competition in the middle of the season. They've gotten on a tremendous roll here at the end of the season, but Georgia's a different challenge for them. NFL style defense, it'll be running very confusing sets for Baker Mayfield. The windows will be smaller. Um, I think Georgia maybe just runs a Nick Saban like show where it's just a, it's a 20 sort of 7 to 20 kind of game, which certainly favors Georgia. All right, the Sugar Bowl, Alabama. Minus two and a half against Clemson. Against Clemson, Alabama favored
1: to win the playoffs in totality. Who do you like here? Again, very interesting. We got Alabama-Clemson part three. This a little bit depends for me on how healthy is Alabama coming into this game. I don't think we know that yet, especially at the linebacker spot. I'm loath to pick against Nick Saban when he has this kind of a time to prepare and his army of analysts. They've got down there in Tuscaloosa. It feels to me this is a game where they're going to be able to limit Clemson just enough. And Clemson's defensive line may not have the kind of effect um, that it normally does in a game because Alabama is not going to try to throw like normal teams. They're going to kind of scheme into a chance to throw deep. And, you know, Jalen Hurts is a tough guy to bring down. Now, if they can stop Alabama running the ball – this one's probably just done. But I don't know that they're going to be able to totally do that. I'm going to take Alabama here, even giving up the points. I'm going to take
0: Clemson in this one. I, I feel like Clemson is very solid on defense. They brush the passer better than anyone else in the country does consistently. Alabama continues to run an offense that cannot throw the ball downfield. They make themselves one-dimensional. I just don't think Alabama has enough this year. And I think that Nick Saban is yielding the fruits of his – super low variance, low risk strategy. And yes, I'm rooting against him actively. I want him not to win. And as I heard you talk about Alabama, Alan, I decided that I can't go against my heart and I've got to pick Oklahoma to beat Georgia. Cause I really want Oklahoma Clemson <laughs> to be the final. I, uh, that's what I want. I'm conflicted, but I want it. So I'm going to make a late switch. I'm going to go Oklahoma Clemson. In the championship and Alan, since you and I may not, due to scheduling conflicts, be able to get on the air before. Do we want to pick our national championship game now or do we want to hedge our bets and wait?
1: Let's hedge it and wait.
0: All right. So with that, Alan, you're going to walk us through the remaining bowl games that do not have national
1: championship implications. Okay, some fun ones here. We'll start with the rest of the New Year's Six. Ohio State, a seven point favorite against USC in the Cotton Bowl.
0: I like Ohio State in this game. This feels like a game that Urban Meyer wins convincingly over a USC team that ended the year feisty. But I think Ohio State has something to prove. And when Urban Meyer has that behind him against a team that doesn't play great defense, he typically wins
1: by a lot. Yeah, young team in Ohio State, I think is going to continue to get better uh, through the break here. USC is interesting. If they can move the ball against this Ohio State defense, I think they could win in the shootout. The points is a little bit scary for me because this game I think will be kind of close, but I'm going to take Ohio State as well. Penn State only a two-point favorite against Washington in the Fiesta Bowl.
0: This line really surprises me. I feel like Penn State's going to win this game by like three touchdowns. Uh, So I'm taking Penn State in a convincing win in the Fiesta Bowl over Washington.
1: Are you worried at all about no Joe Moorhead?
0: Yes, tremendously so. I think that guy makes that team go, and I half think that's why the line's that way. But at this point in time, that team can can run the offense at least at an 80%, 85% level without Joe Moorhead on their own, given all the plays that they they run and, and this, the talent they have. I just don't think Washington has been a very convincing team this year. But I think that line's indicative of that, Alan. I really do.
1: Yeah, I'm going to take Penn State as well. Washington hasn't shown the kind of offensive firepower. Penn State's a good team. I mean, they're in another kind of world. They're in the playoff and, you know, with some slightly different factors. And I think could be, you know, put up a fight against anybody in the country. So again, that feels low to me too, which maybe means Washington's going to win. All right, Wisconsin favored by six and a half going into Miami and playing Miami in the Orange Bowl.
0: Yeah. Is this disappointing for Miami to play in the stadium they always play in? I think so. I think as a college kid, maybe you want to travel around. Bowl week is fun. You get to go to events. You get to eat all this fun food. I think maybe being where you live is not as fun. But the flip side is your whole family gets to watch you play, I guess, in a bowl game. I like Wisconsin a lot here. I think Miami is fraudulent. I think they've been exposed. I think the game plan is out there to beat them. And I think Wisconsin plays extremely disciplined and sound football, which is the exact kind of football that Miami is not capable of beating.
1: Yeah, Miami has, you know, of course slightly better athletes than Wisconsin. But the way that you know, Miami got manhandled by that Clemson team is just does not leave a, a good taste in your mouth. I would not be surprised if Miami won this game. I could see even winning them them winning by a lot, but I can't bet on them, so I'm forced to take Wisconsin. Okay, very interesting game. The best group of 5 teams, UCF going against Auburn. Auburn's a nine and a half point favor. They're in the peach bowl. James, is this a situation where Auburn cares at all is UCF hyped up. They have, they don't have their coach. What, what plays out more for you here? The motivation factor or the no Scott Frost factor.
0: This is the most exciting game for me outside of the Oklahoma, Georgia game. It, It, UCF is going to be on an absolute mission to prove that they can play with the big boys and Auburn doesn't care. I have chronicled this every year of my podcasting life and most of my adult life <laughs> that these big teams don't care. Auburn would rather have the season end their players don't want to play in this bowl game they're disappointed they're frustrated they don't care they're certainly not going to get up to play UCF no matter what the coaches say because that's just not the way that it works. Now, UCF missing its main leader is going to be wanting to prove that they're more than just Scott Frost. Uh, That's how that goes. So really fascinating storylines here. I don't have a single clue what to make of this one. Auburn is vastly superior athletically, just vastly superior. But emotion in college football is a significant, significant thing. I really, Alan, don't have a single clue how this can go. my history tells me you pick motivation, but motivation without your coach tends not to work out well. So I suppose I lean towards a freshly minted Gus Malzahn, feeling good about his contract, feeling good about his life, wanting to put the little guy in his proper place. Uh, But that's only because I do feel like a lot of wind out of UCF sales I've been taking out with Scott Frost. Whether or not they can overcome that, I don't know, but... I guess I'll lean towards Auburn, but this one is really exciting for me to watch. Very uncomfortable for me to pick. This is a super hard game to play. I would not touch this if I was a better. Uh, What do you have here, Alan?
1: Yeah, I feel very similar to you. Usually, I just like to look at the motivation uh, in general because that will tell you a lot. I mean, Famously, Alabama loses these games where they're huge favorites and they just don't care. Auburn's defense has played with a lot of pride all year, and they have an excellent defensive line that I think could give UCF a ton of trouble. I could just see them in the backfield all day. And the way that Auburn plays offense, it's not super complicated, you know. And so I could see them winning by a lot. I could also see UCF just being so juiced that Auburn's like, oh, well, (laughs) I guess we're going to lose this one. And, again, it's not always the effort on the field. It's the effort put into the preparation to get there. Did you show up in shape for the game? Because the the guys are going to try once they're on the field. But, you know, did they care in the previous few weeks? But too much uncertainty for me with UCF right now. Auburn's elite defense, I think, is going to really give UCF some problems. So I'm going to take Auburn even with that kind of large line of nine and a half points. Okay, the rest of the games, or these aren't all of them, we're not going to run through all of them, but maybe our chair picked a few favorites here Notre Dame, LSU, Citrus Bowl. No line on this one yet. Who do you got? I
0: can't believe LSU finished the way they did. It truly is. They were dead. It's truly shocking, but those coordinators have earned every single cent of their paycheck. Notre Dame, bewildering team, up and down, left and right, sideways, can't get a read on them. Notre Dame, I feel like, should be better than this edition of LSU, but they've had too many head-scratching results. Uh, it seems like LSU's going to ride out a lot of momentum this year and quietly finish with a what a double-digit win season, right? I mean, that that blows my mind, but I'm going to take LSU over Notre Dame in this one, which I really can't even believe I'm saying that, an Ed Orgeron-led team. But that's more to the praise of, of Matt Canada and Dave Arnada than it is to Ed.
1: Yeah, that's that's an interesting point there. I mean, after losing to Troy, would you ever have thought LSU would be in this situation? I certainly would not have bet on that. Kind of found their way, and this is it feels like a Notre Dame team that they could handle. So I'm going to take LSU in this game. I wouldn't be surprised if Notre Dame won it, but doesn't feel all that compelling to me in terms of, like, I don't really think whoever's going to win this game is going to be awesome, but... They will get a bump in next year's poll. Um, Kind of classic, you looked a little bit better in the ball game than you did during the regular year. But yeah, Ed O with 10 wins in his first year. Who saw that coming? Oklahoma State, four and a half point favorites over Virginia Tech in the Camping World Bowl. Can Fuente shut down Gundy?
0: This is a fun game. I like this matchup. Oklahoma State should win this game. But I think the line reflects the fact that Mike Gundy's teams are inherently unpredictable especially against teams that play really sound football like Virginia Tech does. Uh, and that's a testament to Fuente's ability to coach his guys at year two already where Gundy's been at Oklahoma State for you know a decade. Uh, but I like Oklahoma State in this game. I think the matchup favors them. I think that they should be able to to win by more than four and a half here.
1: Now I'm going to look at motivation here and VTech feels like maybe they're a little more up for this game than Oklahoma State is. So I'm going to take uh, old Justin here. Maybe you can pull off a little bit of an upset. TCU favored by two and a half against Stanford in the Alamo Bowl.
0: TCU gets obliterated by Oklahoma. It really kind of finishes the season on a low note. Stanford, on the other hand, I think is playing their best football. They're playing in Texas. I don't know how much that really matters for this bowl game. But I'm going to say Stanford has the more... Motivation behind this one. I think they're getting better. I think they're stepping into next year where they're going to be a good team. And so I think they're continuing on their journey. I think TCU maybe is trying to find out who they are after this season that kind of went the way they wanted it to and then didn't go the way they wanted it to. And now they've got a game Stanford team to go against. So I'm going to to take Stanford here in Texas.
1: This is interesting. If you could guarantee me that Bryce Love's going to play in this game and play well, I'd probably take Stanford, but I don't know that he is. So I'm going to take TCU. Uh, Just a gut feeling there. Maybe they put up a few more points uh, than Stanford's willing to. Memphis, favored by three and a half against Iowa State. Two coaching hot shots, young and -and up-and-coming guys in the Liberty Bowl.
0: Who do you like? I really like this game. Two guys we talked quite a bit about in Matt Campbell and then Mike Norvell. Uh, Memphis with the surprising maybe favorite tag there. I think they made a large impression in that game against UCF. I don't know who to like here. I want to say Iowa State because of talent, but then there's a big question mark there because how talented is Iowa State. But I'm going to take Iowa State because I think it's rare that teams that rely on scoring like Memphis does can beat a team like Iowa State who's gotten some of the results they've gotten. Super high motivation for both of these teams, Alan. That's why it should be fun to watch. I think both of these teams will be as jacked up as the playoff teams for this matchup. Really great job by the bowl committee here to make this one happen. I'm going to take Iowa State outright winning over Memphis, but I can't wait to see it. I really can't wait to see how Memphis' offense runs against a power program, even though Iowa State's not really a power program, right? They're from a real conference, therefore there is a bump up, uh, and they have a great coach. So interesting matchup. I like Iowa State.
1: Yeah, I'm going to take Iowa State too. I think I'm a little higher on Matt Campbell than I am Mike Norvell at this point in their careers. And yeah, just maybe they're going to grind it out a little bit, be able to frustrate Memphis. Um, but this is an excellent, intriguing matchup. Maybe one of the better of the kind of lower profile bowls. One that has two teams with pretty good records in it, but the pack. 12 has terrible both affiliations. So this one's taking place in the San Diego credit San Diego County credit union holiday bowl. So get excited for your chance to invest in San Diego credit unions, Washington state, Michigan state, Michigan state favored by three.
0: Yeah. What a great matchup. I mean, these are two ranked teams, These are teams that had some huge wins on their resume, played some really, really exhilarating games, and also had some confusing results. So kind of mirror images of each other. You never know what Mike Leach team you're going to get. I think that the Vegas line is setting it here, thinking that the public is looking at Michigan State. Assuming that Michigan State is a defensive team, they're going to kind of have the kryptonite for Mike Leach's Washington State teams, which are sound, strong schematic defense that makes them drive the ball down the field as opposed to stealing touchdowns. And this is going to be how it's reflected in this line. I just have a feeling that, that that Leach is going to get this one done against Michigan state. Uh, I like, I like Washington state in this one. It's on the West coast. I think both teams are pretty motivated to play in this one, but for some reason, this feels like this feels like a game that Mike Leach is going to win.
1: Agreed. I like them. Michigan state basically is just trying to punt enough that you screw it up. And I don't think that's going to work against Washington state. Now a denton defense can be the type of defense that just locks down Mike Leach and They have a weird game where they score like 10 points, but I don't know. I'm I'm going to bank on fun here and say that Washington state's going to be able to put up some points and this is going to be a fun game or at least fun from a Washington state perspective. Okay. Maybe the five-year anniversary of the Jadevian Clowney obliteration of a Michigan tailback. Michigan versus South Carolina in the Outback Bowl. No line on this one. Maybe Harbaugh feeling the first amount of pressure he's ever felt at Michigan. Do you think he loses this game to Will Muschamp?
0: No way. No way. Michigan had – <laughs> you know, I think we predicted Michigan's season perfectly, Alan, on the podcast uh, in week one before the game against Florida. We talked about how many starters they had missing. We talked about how they were absolutely going to lose three to four games and that that would be a good year for Jim Harbaugh. Uh, they sort of, he inherited a sort of a weird team. And he's not following the three-year rule, uh, of course, by the way. He's, he's sort of like in the notch below it. He's a really interesting resume right now. But the frustration level that's going on in Michigan is is uncalled for at this point in time. And, and I think this is a matchup Michigan handily wins. South Carolina is not a good football team. I've maintained that all year long. They have a lot of wins because they play against garbage competition. Uh, and they, they they can play with you. I don't want to discount them, but Michigan is much better than South Carolina. Uh, and I think that South Carolina is not where a team like Michigan state is and was earlier this season. They also don't sort of have the mental edge over them. Uh, this should be a game. I think Michigan just beats South Carolina in. Uh, relatively handily, I would imagine. So, no, I don't think the hardball ends the season on a loss. I think Will Muschamp does.
1: I think it would be kind of embarrassing for him. So, I think he's going to apply the pressure a little bit. I think they're going to be motivated to win this game. They tend to show up in these bowl games, obviously. Florida fans know that, even if there's not a lot on the line. And they freaking curb stomped us a couple years ago. So, I see a similar future for Will Muschamp in the Alpec Bowl.
0: And I want to put some context into these bowl games because this year we didn't talk about it because Florida's not in a bowl game. Remember that we smashed Iowa in a bowl game last year. And remember how you felt about that? And remember how we came on the podcast and said, that didn't matter. We asked the question last year, if you recall, in January, Alan, does this bowl game matter? That doesn't matter. Take all of these bowl games outside the playoff games with a serious grain of salt because more often than not, they... Don't matter. They just don't matter. Our coach got fired. We were terrible this year, right? Now you can look at extenuating circumstances. Just know, just listen to me. They don't matter. We also talked about Leonard Fournette last year. We talked about him sitting out the bowl game. And what did we say? We said, this will be a trend. This will not stop. It will only increase. Lo and behold, we're seeing this now. It doesn't matter. And no, by the way, the playoff has not Devalued bowl games. I don't buy that argument for even a second. Players have felt this way about bowl games since there were bowl games in the modern era. All right. They just don't care about these mediocre bowl games. It's not something they really care about. Coaches use them to prepare their younger rosters for the future season. The veteran players are trying to get out of there unscathed to attempt to begin. the next phase of the career, if they have one. So just take all these results with a grain of salt, whatever you see in the next couple of weeks, enjoy it. But don't begin to believe that whatever you're watching is going to correlate to next season, because most oftentimes it does not. All right. With that, future episodes on the pod, Alan and I are going to give you a call here for some help on the show. So next Monday, we could have a podcast. The only scenario is there might not be a ton of content to have a podcast on. So send us your thoughts on Facebook, especially Patreon users. Send us your thoughts there on what you would like us to talk about next week. If we feel like there's enough compelling content to do an episode, we will do it. And in fact, continue this practice throughout the holiday season on into January. There are obviously some obvious markers where we will do podcasts. But in those in-between weeks, if you have good content you want to hear Alan and I's thoughts on or breakdown on, we will bring it to you. And if there's nothing there, We'll stay off the air because there's no reason just to have a podcast with nothing compelling on there. So feel free to hit us up, send us email, send us a tweet, send us a Facebook message, hit us up on Patreon. Any one of those methods will work. And then we'll be able to get the content that you guys love and enjoy. All right. Lastly, Alan, let's do a little bit of Gator b-ball talk. Fascinating, fascinating week of Gator basketball. We lose three in a row. We squeak out a win against Cincinnati. I want to ask you, Alan, I've got my own thoughts on this. I want to ask you, what is wrong with the Gator basketball team?
1: That's a great question. I think there's a lot of moving pieces in this, and I, would, I don't know if you can put your finger on one thing. I did not watch the Loyola-Chicago game because I found out that we lost and I couldn't handle it. I was going to watch it on replay and then looking for the game. Somehow I saw a video, which normally doesn't happen, And I was like, nope, not going to do it. I can't handle that. I didn't watch the second half of the FSU game because my wife lovingly told me, do not watch it, you might break the TV. And we talked last week about how we were hoping for a big Florida win, and that was an awful showing. But I was encouraged by our play against Cincinnati. Here's our real issue. is we don't have any size that we can depend on. And maybe that's not always the most important thing. But we're really struggling defensively against teams with size. Now, John McBooney will help a lot if we get him back. That'll slide guys into maybe some more natural positions. And when we don't shoot well, we don't really know what to do. And for me, it's probably that plus the play of Kevon Allen. He's a guy that we want to rely on and he's just struggling. I don't think he knows his place along guys like Igor and Jalen Hudson. And those guys are new. You know, they haven't played. Different guys are getting big minutes. And I don't know that we have the same kind of defensive, I don't want to say intensity, but the same kind of consistency and dedication to the details that last year's team had. So combination of size, Kevon struggles, and maybe fitting in some new places defensively and guys struggling.
0: Those are all things that are certainly hampering the Gator basketball team. And there's a laundry list of things that are affecting us. But let me start with the catalyst. The catalyst is a man in North Carolina named Mike Krzyzewski, who with nine and a half minutes left against our own Gators, stumbled upon, because he's one of the greatest coaches ever, a tactic and strategy that has neutralized our basketball team ever since. And I'll tell you what it is. Mike Krzyzewski in that game displayed a mixture of a 2-3 zone followed by some man-to-man, split basically in half. Half your defense is going to be zone, then you're going to run half your minutes in man. And you're going to sort of use momentum to dictate when you do that. Secondly, you are always going to have all five defenders back And you are not going to let us transition. It is going to be a half-court basketball game in its entirety. If those two things occur, we're in trouble. Florida State took that strategy put on film by Mike Krzyzewski and executed it perfectly against us. They had all five guys back on nearly every single possession. They rebounded the basketball extremely well. They played a lot of 2-3 zone. Now, playing a 2-3 zone against us, Alan, shouldn't even make any sense given how many shooters that we have. But teams are able to overplay those shooting lanes because they have zero fear, with what you mentioned, Allen, that we have anyone that can score the basketball within five or six feet of the hoop. So they can extend it out, play hyper-aggressive, and deny our shooters some obvious shots. Lastly, if there is an Achilles heel to Mike White, Allen, in my opinion, it's his lack of half-court offense. It's his lack of half-court offense. Florida does not run a lot of sets, we do not run a lot of set plays, and in fact, we barely even have what you would consider to be a well-developed half-court offensive play at all. An offensive play for Mike White's team might be as simple as a high ball screen, and that's the whole play. Go take it and take a shot, which is extremely frustrating when teams are making you play in the half-court. Couple all of that with our team's inability to play good defense and get weak side rebounds, which lead two transition opportunities, you get the perfect storm that was the past week. Now, the win against Cincinnati was was much needed, but it was the yeah. same exact game that we played against Florida State and Loyola. We were more committed on the defensive end. So this is going to be, I think, one of the more fascinating basketball seasons of recent memory, Alan. We are shooting very poorly, but that is mainly attributed to us having to play in the half court. We're going to see what Mike White is made of. I continue to love Mike White. I'm not knocking Mike White when I said that his half-court offense is not a thing. It is his Achilles heel. I think he'd be the first to mention it. It goes against his style. But he's going to have to find something here. We're going to have to execute in the half-court better than we are, because I can assure you that every single team we play is going to attempt to enact that kind of strategy. Now, lastly on this, Alan, before I ask you about whether or not we're going to get it back, Florida State, Loyola and Cincinnati, Allen, were three of the better teams in the country at employing such a strategy against us. There are not very many teams that are disciplined enough on defense to have all five guys back with the commitment to rebounding those three teams had. Both Loyola and Florida State are top 10 in transition defense and Cincinnati's top 25 in a wide variety of defensive categories. So we did sort of run into this weird, perfect storm where teams were able to play this Krzyzewski strategy, if you will, on us, and we had no answer for it. We get a nice long time off before we come back. We've got to figure something out in the half court, though, because if Buno does not come back until mid to late January, he will not be settled into the lineup until the end of February, which is tournament time. We're going to have to figure out how to score in the half court because if you let us transition, Alan, we will light the scoreboard up. But if you don't, we seem to be a totally different team. It's really remarkable given that we were averaging 100 points a game, and now we have a hard time breaking 60. All right, with that, Alan, Justin Sight said on this very podcast that he thought we'd be a Final Four team before the season started. He said we'd have some really frustrating losses and the team would play lost at times. All those things have been true. Do you think this team still has what it takes to get to the Final Four, or are you feeling a little bit less confident now that we can be as good as maybe we thought we were?
1: Yes. Now, I think I was riding the high a little bit from that PK-80 tournament where I thought we won despite the fact that we weren't playing at our peak. Uh, this week has showed our deficiencies, and you're right. I mean, if you want to talk about rugged, rough-up-the-game, just beat you to a pulp teams. it's Florida State and Cincinnati. And so I was encouraged that we showed up against Cincinnati and played with some more t- t- toughness and resilience. And I thought, you know, Mike White making a a very smart tactical change in the second half, late in the second half, where basically was posting up Chris Chioza on the wing, getting him into the lane, and letting stuff happen. I thought that was brilliant. At first, I was like, what are we doing? But it was perfect against what they were trying to do to us. And so I'm, you know, not that he's going to have a great half-court set, so we're not going to be like Wisconsin or whatever, but... I think he is tactically smart enough to make things happen. Can he get these guys playing at a high enough level? I think that it's there. I could see a a future, especially if we can get Keystone playing a little bit better. Kulichov, if if guys can not all be playing shooting terribly at the same time, I think we'll be okay. And now predicting a tournament run is always difficult. You know, saying that we're a final four team. It's hard to say. I I would rather predict like a seed line. Um, Are we capable of getting a two or three seed? And I still think we are. I think we can get into conference play. And even though the SEC is tougher this year, I think we can win a lot of games. I think we're going to blow a lot of people out if we're hot. And I still think we're capable of that. I think we're going to be a dangerous team tournament time. And I wouldn't be surprised even at right this moment if we ended up in the final four. Now I'm not predicting that. I think the team is still capable of that. What about you?
0: Yeah, we've got a ton of variance right now, and and that's what you're alluding to. And you've got a guy like Three Gore who hasn't quite proven to me that he can play against the elite competition. I think his game can, and I think he's a hard enough worker to get there. But he's definitely not used to this closeout speed of defenders that we've played against, and and you can see that affects how he. He takes the shots, how he drives at the hole. He'll find himself. That's why basketball is great. It's a long season. And you, I think, are the nail on the head, Alan. Chris Chioza is a supremely good creator in transition. But in the half court, he's been struggling. It's not his fault. Because we do not have a big and we do not run complicated action, Chioza can break down his man. But he immediately, Alan, gets help side defense coming out of the lane especially if he's starting at the top of the key. The brilliant tactical shift you just mentioned was by putting him on the wing, it makes it much harder to help side defend because there are a lot more passing options when you're attacking from the wing than when you're attacking from the top of the key with the way that teams can totally ignore our underneath presence. I think you're highlighting some of the things Mike White's going to have to stumble upon until we have a guy like Igbuno. Now look, Igbuno's not going to be an NBA player, but Having anyone down there who can command respect one-on-one in a rebounding situation, who can at least score with some threat, will open the lanes back up. And I think, Alan, that's the key to this team. If we are able to have open driving lanes and we can kick, there's not a single team in the country we cannot beat. But if you are able to play help side defense and deny deny those wing passes and deny some of those kicks that shows is so good at making, we are super one-dimensional. So I think this team's got a large ceiling and it's got a very, very, very... Low, maybe even floor <laughs> because we've saw that right we can play poorly yeah but all in all so I, I, I believe also- in this team yeah i believe in this team i'm with you i think this team can get there i think my way will keep tinkering i think we have all the pieces that we need to score i think we'll get them playing better defense uh, i think this team can make a lot of noise come later on and i, I not win against cincinnati i thought as gritty and ugly as it was showed a lot about mike white's ability to coach I mean, don't take that for granted. That was a really excellent way for this team to win because it was so outside how we should be winning. And that says a lot about how this team can play and why they could be dangerous.
1: And I would like to see us get to a position with the development of some of these guys where we could maybe bring Jalen Hudson off the bench where he's just lighting up second units and we're not relying on him to defend at an elite level because he's not doing that yet. And there's too often his guys floating past him. Uh, And I love the way he plays um, on offense. And he takes some bad shots. And please, somebody showed DeAndre Ballard that he's allowed to pass the ball. That kid chucks it up as soon as he touches every time. And it's gone in more than I thought it would. Um, But, yeah, Mike White's got to get a handle on him. uh, Because we're going to need him to play minutes because he's a big guy. So there's some some stuff that could happen. I'm not – riding high. Like I was, we basically should have beaten Duke, which is the number one team in the country. And if you can do that, if you can beat Duke, you can beat anybody. So I could see another deep run. I'm still hopeful, hoping to see some development from this team as we get into conference play.
0: Yeah. Enjoy, enjoy this season. This is going to be a fun season to evaluate the coach. We will keep coming at you with some of these breakdowns, especially when there there's evidence like there was last week of what's going on on film. You know, we love that basketball is a much simpler, X is and O's sports and football is, but you've seen some of that cat and mouse game already occurring and it will continue to occur as we move forward. All right. With that, we're going to put a cap on episode 16 of the Gator nation football podcast. We certainly hope you enjoyed this episode. We hope you enjoy this next week in December, take in the Christmas music or the holiday festivities, uh, wherever you are across the country. And as always, Alan and I certainly appreciate you listening. We love doing the show for you guys. And uh, we will be back potentially next Monday, depending on the content we get. But if not, we'll be back with you soon. You can stay tuned to our Twitter feed, our Facebook feed, or on Patreon. And we'll let you know when we will be back with you. Have a great one. And we'll see you soon.